0: Today, we finish up the book of James, and we talk about money. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it neither? Let's find out. Hi, welcome to Upgrade Your Faith. I'm Luke Gradeless, and this is one of our Bite-sized Bible studies. Our goal, if you haven't been here before, is to spend a few minutes together in God's Word, to activate our minds, touch our hearts, and start to transform our souls. We've been going through the book of James, and we find ourselves at the end. We're in James chapter five. And this chapter really does feel like the conclusion because you see James touching on some themes and some points that he's pulling from earlier chapters. You also see him kind of hit just some really quick points that you know he wants to get through to the audience that he's talking to here. And so it's a beautiful conclusion that pulls on some of those themes, elaborates on some of those themes, and makes you think about things in a different way than you have before. So let's jump into James chapter 5. We'll go from there. In James chapter 5, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are mothing. Your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so just as, you know, we, we learned earlier in this book, you cannot serve two masters. It's just not possible. In Luke sixteen thirteen, it says, no servant can serve two masters, right? He will either love one or hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? And, and so here we find ourselves with a very similar thought that James is expressing to us. He's calling out to these people who call themselves Christians. And he's saying, how you view money is wrong. You don't view it in the right way. And we have to be careful with this because sometimes what we want to do is we want to simplify this and go, okay, so money is evil, being poor is righteous, right? We want to make this clear distinction that okay, if I have stuff that's wrong and if I don't have stuff that's good. It, it doesn't work that way. Right? As with anything in scripture, not only is it the action that you're doing, but there's also a huge focus on the intent and the motive of the things that you do. And so having wealth is not wrong if you use that wealth as an instrument that God has given you, Right, acknowledging right? the wealth is something that he's given to you, and your primary focus for that wealth in your life is to build the kingdom, to show your devotion to God, and to show your love for people. And so if you have wealth and use wealth well, then it is an awesome and great thing. However, wealth can be sinful and it often tempts us to sin. Because what tends to happen is, is once we get a taste of it, our goal becomes to pursue more and more of it. And so the big things that we we have to think about when we look at wealth is we need to think about, one, what's our motive in it? what i always tell people is as christians uh, much like we do with our marriage vows right we say i give to you all i am and all i have do you have that view of your relationship with wealth with god god i give you all i am and all i have so any money i have any material possessions i have they're yours lord i know they're yours and they're going to be used for your glory right so that's a big piece of this is how do you view the wealth And and especially in your relationship with God. The second key component is, is, is how much does it motivate and how much love do you have for it, right? Is it just an instrument or is this how you define yourself? Is this where your self worth comes from? Is this where your sense of identity comes from? Is that you have this wealth and you lavish it around? right? You're not just using this to give yourself comfort. You're using this to display to people that you are powerful, that you are worldly, that you are a force. That in itself is another area where wealth can pull us off the wrong way. So so we have to be careful of one, you know, how do we view it in a relationship with, with God? Is it yours or his? Second, how much is it the motivator of your life, the pursuit of it? How much does that drive you? And the third thing we see him addressing here as he talks about wealth is it's clear from this passage that the way these these so-called Christians had gained this wealth was by mistreating other people, right? They're, they're, They're ripping off the people who work for them. They're not paying fair wages. They're not showing love and compassion on the people. So they are using others to gain wealth which they then don't use in their relationship with God, and they use to elevate themselves in a worldly way. And what James is saying is there is no room for that. You can't be that way. You cannot love both money and God. You can only have one master. That master has to be Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. So that gets us to our second section here. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so what we get in verses 7 through 11, is kind of a call back to the beginning. Christian people have got to be strong people. They've got to expect these difficulties to come. And, and I think this is one of the things that we have failed the most in. In the mindset that we have created in ourselves and then even in our children. We, we have desired and pursued comfort in the church so much that we all kind of assume that something is wrong, something is broken. If there's trials and tribulations, if there is pain, if there is hurt, we, we immediately assume something must be wrong. And it really harkens back to what you see in the book of Job, which is what James references here. Job's friends assume that Job had done something wrong because all the things that were happening to him, You and I, right? the reader, we know because of what God says at the beginning of that book that he didn't do anything wrong, that the the punishments that were coming his way were not because of a sinful action, right? They were an attack of Satan. But the people around him looked around and said, man, if you were a good guy, this wouldn't happen to you. And I think somewhere in us, we still think that today. Right? I'm being faithful. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm giving to God. I'm serving in ministry. Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. This isn't right. And we have to push that out of our minds and realize just because you do good things doesn't mean life will be easy. One of the things he calls out here in verses seven through 11 is don't complain. Right? Don't complain. And I'll be real with you. that That's a hard thing. Um, there was a lot of stuff in the last year that didn't go the way that I had envisioned or had hoped or had wanted. And it was so easy to watch the news, to see what was happening in the world and just complain and complain and complain and go, can you believe this is happening? Can you believe that it's happening? And you just start getting angry and bitter. That is not what we are supposed to do. Instead, what he tells us is instead of complaining by focusing everything on what's happening right in front of you. Now step back, turn your eyes to God and live in the hope and the expectation of the return of Jesus Christ, right? In the moment when the now is pulling you down, what we as Christians need to do is trust and hope in Jesus's return and everything that he's going to bring, right, knowing that he's gonna wipe out all this pain and hurt knowing that he's going to set right everything that's wrong, knowing that he's going to straighten everything that's crooked. That needs to be something that we are constantly focused on. And if we do that, if we remember that and trust in that and look forward to it, that is the light in the midst of the darkness that will push it all back. And that's the thing that will help us be strong and help us persevere as we go through these trials. Uh, So verse 12 is interesting, right? Because it kind of feels like this just one little piece that he throws in there. And so if you look at James chapter 5, verse 12, this is this is what he says. He says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so what's he talking about here? He's talking about in these times of trials, right? And as as you are a person of integrity in these moments, be a person who can just be trusted by what you say. Your yes is yes, your no is no. It was very common in this day and age to make these oaths where you would swear by, you know, yeah, I swear on my mother's grave or I swear on this thing or I swear on that thing, right? You, you would you would use something tangible, real or significant and say, because I'm referencing this, that's how serious I am about this thing. And And what James is saying here is, you don't need to be swearing on everything. You need to be a person of integrity and truth especially in these times of difficulty and when you say i'm going to do that people know you're going to do that right your yes is yes your no is no now this doesn't strictly forbid all oaths you'll see oaths in the old testament you'll see jesus take oaths right so there are moments to do that but it is a moment of real significance in life and it's few and far between let's look at verses 13 through 18. So then he transitions and starts to talk about this topic of prayer. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And and so again, in this context of trials and tribulations, what is he saying to us to do? We got to pray. We got to pray, 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 pray. And I think this is one of the areas that many Christians struggle in, right? Because we so badly want to do, right? If we find ourselves in stress, if we find ourselves in worry, if we find ourselves in a mess, we so often want to go, okay, how do I fix this? How do I make this right? How do I correct this? And and don't get me wrong. We need to be a people of action. We need to be a people who are constantly going, okay, what has God given me? what talents, what abilities, what resources, what solutions are at my fingertips that I could use to fix the situation. But what we must always remember is, is that we have to trust in God, right? The whole point of all these things that we go through is to be closer in our relationship with the Lord. Many times we are so focused on the storm ending that we miss that there's a reason the storms in our life. And that if we were really talking to God and walking with God in the midst of those storms, we would find ourselves learning things and growing and changing and maturing. And and so we shouldn't just be sitting here going, let this end, Lord. We should be going, God, what do you want to teach me in this? Father, how can I lean on you? How can I depend on you? How can I focus on you? And, And what we need to have is this mentality where it's this beautiful balance of faith in God, but also effort on our part. Uh, John MacArthur says it this way. He says, you need to know it all depends on God, but you need to live as if it depends on you. And we also, as you see here, need to lean on those in our church, in our church family, to help us in these moments. Right? He talks about the elders. And and so, you know, you got to be careful with this because some people have used this passage to suggest that if you get the elders of the church together, their prayers are more holy and more powerful, and they can pray over you and heal you. And look, God can do amazing and great things. But this is more about the healing of your spirit than it is about your body. Right? All of us, our bodies are going to break and fail. That is a guarantee of life. The more important thing for the believer is, is your spirit strong? And is your spirit right to face whatever it is you're going through? And then he concludes in 19 and 20. And he says this, he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so I love this, this last piece here, because if we look at the book of James, One of the most profound things that he encourages and commands is something that we don't like to do anymore, and that is that he is calling out people who say they are a Christian, yet either in their theology or in their actions or how they speak or how they deal with money right or how they interact with the world, there's clear evidence that something's amiss, something's wrong. And so in the book of James, what he's encouraging us as believers to do is if we see that, right? If we see somebody who raises their hand and goes, yes, I I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's no evidence in the way that they're living their lives. And in fact, the evidence of their lives actually suggests the contrary, that they're not believers. That you and I aren't supposed to sit there and be quiet about it. No, we're supposed to in love for the purpose of what he says in 19 and 20, for the purpose of helping them find real faith and real salvation. We are to help them see where there might be sin present, where maybe they haven't understood that Jesus isn't just something you add on to your life, but rather that he is life. We have to see those things and be willing to have those conversations. And again, the key comes from the motive that he shows here. When I confront a brother or sister on this, it's not to go, oh, you're wrong, I'm right. I'm holy, you're not, you know, it's not to push them down to lift us up. No, the reason we do it, the motive is because we love them. And we want to see that lost sheep come back to the fold. We want to see that lost sheep return to the shepherd. And because of that desire, that's why we have these conversations. And so that's my prayer for you, is that as you look through this book, is that it will encourage you to be bold and strong in the tough times. And that it will also encourage you to look at your brothers and sisters as they go through tough times and help them strengthen their faith and make sure that what they're really doing in life is, is that they've pushed everything else away. And they are chasing after the Lord. He is their master. They are his servant. And they have an unbelievable joy and helping him accomplish his work. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us. I hope you have a great day. May God use you, may God bless you, and we will see you soon.